our God in heaven, this is for me the best time of the week. It's a time where we need to slow down. It's a time where we need sincerity. It's a time where we need to recognize the value of Your Word and devote ourselves to hearing it. And to quiet ourselves and still ourselves and submit ourselves to Your Spirit as You so graciously apply Your Word to our hearts and our lives as You see fit. I pray and ask this morning that You would help all of that to be accomplished. As we pray each and every week, I ask again that You would remove distractions. That You would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And give us minds to understand and hearts to experience and know and believe. This is one of the most important things we will give ourselves to. The public declaration of Your Word. Pray it wouldn't be lost. That we would take full advantage of the gift that we are now given. And that you in all your mercy and in all your love would send forth your word in a compelling fashion and a life-changing fashion. May you be most glorified in it. In Jesus' name, Amen. Please take your Bibles with me this morning and open them back to Colossians chapter 1. The first chapter of the little New Testament book, Colossians. Verses 9-14 through 14 again. This is our fifth week now in verses 9-14. through 14. <clears throat> As we begin to wrap up and look at the last point that Paul is highlighting in these verses. And I'll just let you know that I've prayed several times this week that God would make the sermon as beautiful and as rich and as compelling as the text actually is. This is one of the most enriching, wondrous passages of Scripture, especially that we've encountered in Colossians thus far. And... Um, Every time I've sat down and studied and thought through it and wrote about it, I just come to this conclusion that my words are not adequate enough to communicate what God is communicating here. So I hope uh, that in some way He would do some supernatural work to make this this text uh, come across better than um, better than I can make it come across. So if you remember from verse ten, a quick recap. Verse ten is the point that Paul's been highlighting here in these verses. He wants these Colossian Christians to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. He wants their lives to be fully pleasing to Him. And that's the exhortation to you and I. Live in a way that honors God. Live in a way that pleases God. We've highlighted that word please. Uh, it's an important word for us as a Christian. We want to please God. The first way we do that is in verse 9. The thing that Paul prays for, petitions God for regularly is that these Christians would be filled with the knowledge of God's own will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. The knowledge of that will is the gospel. God's redemptive plan. And Paul wants these Christians to have a supernatural right understanding and right application of God's redemptive plan 
uh, for their lives. That's the foundation for walking in a way that pleases the Lord. The other things that he highlights, these other four things in verse 10, 11, and now 12 uh, are simultaneously the result of living a life that pleases the Lord, but a way to enhance the life that pleases the Lord. It's also built on the foundation of knowing God's gospel will for the world. The first one we looked at was in verse 10. To live a fully pleasing life to God, we must bear fruit in every good work. Number two, to live a life that's fully pleasing to God, we must increase in the knowledge of God. Number three, verse 11, to live a life that's fully pleasing to God, we must endure and be patient through the trials of this wicked life. And today, verse 12, to live a life that is fully pleasing to God, we must be people who regularly give thanks. The whole point of verses 12, 13, and 14 is this phrase, giving thanks to the Father. It's the expression of our faith. It's the action of our faith. And Paul's not calling the Christians here to say thank you just once. He's calling them to a constant thanksgiving. In other words, he's saying orient your lives in a way that make you a thankful people. Specifically, thankful to God for salvation. Thanksgiving, church, is one of the chief marks and privileges of the Christian life. It sets us apart. We are a people who recognize with fullness the graces and gifts of God. And therefore, our lives are marked by constant thanksgiving to Him. We're going to consider what that means at the end of this morning. We're going to start with the rest of verses 12, 13, and 14 today. The reason that we should be thankful people, the reason we should give thanks to the Father, is all that the Father has done for us. We first take note in verse 12. Paul's going to be building a structure here as he often does. It's a structure of logic, one that builds upon itself throughout the text. Uh, each thing is going to answer the next question of why or how. And the first thing he highlights here is that God has qualified Christians. God has qualified Christians. I would first have you take notice that God the Father here is the central object of the text. It's the Father who does a work within us. It's God who initiates qualifying you as a Christian. God's the one who takes the first step. God's the orchestrator of our salvation. He's the architect of our salvation. He's the accomplisher of our salvation. It is not in and of ourselves to save ourselves. It is only by the grace and gift of the Father. You are only saved. And you and I only have salvation because it delights God the Father to save. If God did not delight in saving sinners, no sinner would ever be saved. If God did not delight in converting the lost and bringing them into glory with Him, then no one would ever be in glory with Him. The only way any person in, in human history at any point in time has any inkling of salvation or eternity with Christ is because the Father Himself has first acted. In Genesis chapter 3, we back up all the way there. and Adam and Eve have sinned and 
God begins to pronounce curse and, and punishment for the consequences of their sin. And even at that point, what do we find taking place? God initiating the plan of salvation. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, talking to that wicked serpent. He says, you will crush the offspring of Eve's heel, but he will crush your head. There's coming an offspring of Eve who will win the victory. The singular offspring of Eve becomes the singular offspring of Abraham who becomes the singular offspring of David who becomes the singular offspring of the Virgin Mary who crushes the serpent's head. All because God in the beginning, before we even knew we needed a Savior or needed salvation, decided in Himself to act to save sinners. Church, that's a truth that shouldn't be lost on us. If giving thanks and being a thankful people pleases God, we first must understand that everything we have comes from God, including the greatest gift you and I can ever know, salvation. It is a woeful thing to go through this life without ever acknowledging that God has saved you. And it's a woeful thing to go through this life as a Christian knowing you're saved without ever acknowledging that it was God who took the first step to save you and that it was God who accomplished the salvation that you have. God is the one who has acted. It's interesting here to me that Paul uses the Father, the specific person of the Father, this designation out of the Trinity, because we often think of the Father as the one who has wrath on sin and demonstrates justice. We go to Romans chapter 3 and that's what is being talked about. Paul highlights that wrath has to be dealt out upon sin. Sin has to be punished because God is just. And yet, at the same time, it's the Father out of His love and mercy that sends the Son. So you have this beautiful picture where God in His perfect justice cannot allow sin to go unpunished. He cannot ignore it. And yet out of His divine love and mercy, He longs to save sinners. So He sends His own Son to accomplish that task. So that in Romans chapter 3, verse 26, Paul would say, that way God can be both just and the justifier. God has acted. That's the first thing Paul would have us to take note of. If we're going to give thanks, realize everything you have is by the Father's initiative. You and I, we have no power or strength within ourselves to accomplish anything. Certainly not our salvation. So give thanks to the Father who, this is what He's done, has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Before we get to this unique word qualified, I want to highlight a few more things. First, I want you to understand the past tense of the language Paul is using. God has already, past tense, qualified you. It's in the past. That's because what uh, Paul is writing about here and what you and I are reading about here has already been accomplished in the work of Jesus. God qualified you, past tense, through the cross. God has already taken care of what needed to be taken care of. God has already acted in a way that He needed to act. So don't let the past tense language be lost on us. It's important to realize there's nothing we add. It's already taken care of. 
as a Christian, it's not that you keep doing good works to keep your favor before God. Your qualification before God and your qualification to enter into heaven is already guaranteed and secure. There are no things that you're adding now. It's not your obedience that keeps you in the good graces of God. It's still the one act of Jesus Christ. Your qualification as a Christian today is set in stone because of something that happened outside of you, beyond you, and long before you. It's a a Thanksgiving-inducing reality, isn't it? That not only has God taken the first step and the initiative in acting on our behalf, but He fully and completely and totally accomplished it through Christ so that there is no need to keep acting. Oh Christian, thank God that He took the first step and thank God that He completely took care of your need for a Savior. Second, look at the way that He describes this salvation. He says, God has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Specifically, we get a share in God's eternal inheritance. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through 6, Peter describes this inheritance as undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, guarded by God's own power. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, Paul talks about the glorious riches of this inheritance that you and I have. What is this inheritance? We'll find out later in verse 13. It's the kingdom of God's beloved Son. Essentially, it's Jesus Himself. What are you and I to inherit? The greatest treasure man could ever possess. Christ. It's no wonder then that in in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven and what it's like. And He says it's like a treasure in a field that when a man stumbles across it, he goes and he liquidates and sells everything that he has and leverages everything that he has so he can go and buy this field for the joy of what he had found. He forsakes everything for the joy of having the kingdom. Why? Because knowing God, possessing the kingdom is of far greater value than anything this world has to offer. The inheritance that you and I have is the greatest treasure we could ever be given. It is Christ Himself in a place with Him in eternity. You realize that you and I were orphans apart from God. Poor. Bankrupt. Lost. Helpless and hopeless. And by God's good grace, we are now the richest people in the universe. We have wealth beyond fathomability. Wealth beyond comprehension because we have Jesus. It's not Material wealth, not financial wealth. It's a treasure far beyond that. A treasure that, that would make a man say, I'll give up everything in this life to have. So God took the first step. God completed what needed to be completed. And God gives us the greatest gift we could ever be given. 
it's no wonder then that Paul would say, give thanks to the Father. It's no wonder that he would include this in his list of things that make for a life that pleases God. You want to please God, then rightly acknowledge all that God has done for you in saving you and give Him thanks. Let's come now and consider this word qualified because it's a unique word. We don't find it often in the New Testament. Uh, we certainly don't find it in connection to salvation as often. But Paul uses it here. He doesn't say the Father has saved you or redeemed you. He'll come to that later in verse 14. He says the Father has qualified you. I wanted to look at the definition of this word and I'm glad I did because it's, it helps convey what Paul's conveying. It's a verb as Paul uses it. And it means to be fitted or competent for something. It also means the fulfilling of required conditions. That's exactly what the Father has done for you and I. He fulfilled for us the required conditions fitting us for the inheritance that we are to receive in Christ. Here's the truth you and I first have to understand. All humanity is disqualified from God. We know that to be true. Those of us who are born again and saved. But it's a, it's a truth that we shouldn't neglect and we should remember often. It enhances our thanksgiving and it enhances our worship that apart from God, we are disqualified from eternity. We're disqualified from heaven. We're disqualified from the inheritance. And why is that? Because apart from God, we are all still in our sin. We're lawbreakers. Only those who are righteous inherit the kingdom of God. And apart from God, you and I are as far from righteousness as we can be. We're, we're the exact opposite. We're unrighteous. We have broken God's law. You know how often I visit with people about the gospel and the number one thing that I encounter is people thinking they can be good enough to get into heaven. You don't have to do a lot of convincing to people. I have before. I've had to convince some. But you don't have to convince a lot of people that they've made mistakes in life. That they're sinful. They just think that their good works will take care of that sin. I've shared with you a story before. I want to share it again. Of an international student here on Swasu's campus that I had the privilege of sharing the gospel with. And once we finally came to the point where he would admit that he had broken at least one of God's laws, that he was at least guilty in one regard, he still believed his good would outweigh his bad and God would judge him accordingly at the end. And I had to convince him and tell him, all your acts of good will not take care of your one act of guilt. You are still guilty. Even if you and I are the most moral individuals, the most obedient individuals, the best American citizens or world citizens, even if we're all of that combined into one, we're still guilty. And one act of guilt disqualifies us from God. God in His perfect justice will by no means ever ignore sin and transgression. 
God will never look the other way when it comes to breaking His law. God will never let the guilty go unpunished. No judge in their right mind would ever do that. Certainly not the perfect righteous judge. You and I, apart from God, are not this word qualified. We're the opposite of this word. We're unqualified because we're guilty. God will never tolerate and live with the guilty. Psalm chapter 5, verse 4 says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness, and evil may not dwell with you. There's no place for the guilty in heaven. There's no place for the guilty by the side of God. You and I are in desperate need of a change. We're in desperate need of a pardon. We're in desperate need of an intervention. In Romans chapter 1, Paul highlights this. It's not even just that we're guilty. Let me flip over to Romans chapter 1, verse 18. You guys know this verse. It says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It's not just that you and I are guilty. It's that we only get to inherit and we only deserve the wrath of God. That's the only portion that belongs to you and I. At the end of Romans chapter 1, Paul gives this list of the kind of unrighteousness he talks about. Verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. Listen closely because you're going to find yourself in this list. They're full of envy or jealousy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. That one gets us all. Foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. And though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they even give approval to others to practice them. Colossians chapter 3. There's another list that we find. A list of worldliness. In verse 5, put to death what is earthly in you. Here's a list of, of fleshly, earthly things. Things that make you guilty before God. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness which is idolatry. Look what he says in verse 6. On account of these things, here it is again, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked before you were, you were born again. Verse 8, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your, your mouth, lying, Again, it doesn't take long to convince us that we fall somewhere in those lists, right? The thing that you and I need to understand is that that list makes us guilty before God and there is no way to take care of our guilt ourselves. There's absolutely no way for you and I to make ourselves right before God. 
Other places in Scripture, like Romans chapter 5, were declared as enemies of God. We're called rebels in Scripture. We're called transgressors in Scripture. We're called dead in Scripture. A very bleak picture of humanity. Meant and intended to bring us to our lowest place in the lowest view of ourselves. Meant to weigh upon our hearts and our minds in a way that is burdensome. If you can contemplate your sin and your guilt without pain and burden, I dare say you don't really understand it. Scripture paints the darkest picture of the plight of humanity so that you will be weighed down by its yoke. So that when you come to words like qualified, there enters in a peace and a relief and a joy and a gratitude that is almost undefinable and inexpressible. You are the worst kind. I am the worst kind of unqualified. But God the Father qualifies. He fits us for the inheritance and He meets the required conditions. And what is the required condition to inheriting eternal life with Christ, with God? What is the required conditions to be fitted to so that we get the greatest treasure of Jesus Himself and eternity with Him? It is nothing less than perfect righteousness. So that God would send His Son Jesus to be righteous for us. For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God qualifies you by taking your sin, putting it on His Son Jesus, taking His Son Jesus' righteousness, and putting it on you. So the only way that you and I get the inheritance, the only way that you and I come into the kingdom of Jesus, the only way that you and I gain the greatest treasure of Christ Himself is by being made righteous by the Father through the work of His Son. And if that doesn't thrill our hearts to to thanksgiving, I don't know what will. Give thanks, Paul says, because this justful, wrathful, Yet loving, merciful God has qualified you that you might have the greatest inheritance imaginable. Douglas Moo in his commentary on this verse said, Paul's intended meaning is clear enough. God the Father has Himself provided what sinners need to be considered worthy to join the people of God. God Himself has provided what sinners need. Do not think we can overstate the beauty of that. I think we could spend an ample amount of time there. But let's move on into verse 13 and 14 because though we could contemplate what it means to be qualified and consider how gorgeous and glorious that is, there's still a more remarkable truth in verse 13 and 14 of how God has graciously and lovingly accomplished that qualification. 
I would summarize verse 13 and 14 with the word conversion. How has God qualified you through the work of His Son? It is through conversion. He, God, has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. The, the three main target words in this text are qualified, delivered, and transferred. And notice again, they're all three in the past tense. Because it's the work of Christ that has accomplished these things. You're qualified by Christ. You've been delivered by Christ. You've been transferred by Christ. Not of your own doing and not of your own addition. But also notice Paul changes his language here in verse 13. He goes from a, from a narrow statement to a broad statement. In verse 12, he says the Father has qualified you. I want you Colossian Christians to give thanks because the Father has qualified you specifically. But how has He qualified you? By doing the work He does for all Christians. In verse 13, He uses the more general, broad, universal terms, us and we. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred, transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. He qualifies the same way He qualifies everybody through His general, universal work of conversion. What does that conversion look like? We start with the word deliverance. First, let me say, Paul is not writing here something that happens in sequential order. He's writing something that happens in concurrent order. In other words, you're not delivered and then transferred. You're delivered because you're transferred. God, to qualify you and I, has ordained and desired to deliver us. What has He delivered us from? The domain of darkness. Now, in the immediate context, that's directly in contrast to the inheritance of the saints in light. You and I want the inheritance of the saints in light. But the problem is, before Christ, without Christ, we're in the dominion of darkness. That place is a place void of all peace, void of hope, void of life, void of purpose, and filled with chaos, confusion, and destruction. And that again is the plight of all humanity, isn't it? We're under the dominion of darkness. We're under the rule of the prince of darkness. We live in separation from God. There is no such thing as a harmless sin. J.I. Packer says, there is no such thing as a small sin against a great God. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says it a little differently, but still as forcefully. In Ephesians 2, verse 1, 2, and 3, he says it like this, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the, power, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. When the Scriptures describe living under the domain of darkness, it is telling us we are as far removed from God as possible. 
when Scripture refers to the kingdom of God or the person of God as light, it's referring to it as life, as pleasure, as peace, as enjoyment, as hope. We find that in several places. John chapter 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. John chapter 1, John prefaces his whole book by saying, the true light which gives life to everyone was coming into the world. But by contrast, when we don't exist in a right relationship with God, we're not in light, we're in darkness. Lost. In the depths of despair. Be imaginative with me for a moment, if you will, and picture yourself in the deepest pit possible, surrounded by nothing but blackness. And at every turn you reach and you grasp and you look for something to stabilize you, something to hold you, something to hang on to, something to find your place, something to give you balance, something to find your position. And every grasp and every reach and every leap, there's nothing to be found. You're blind. That's the kind of place that we need deliverance from. Paul's word there is perfect. Oftentimes we think of existing in our sin as just something we need to cure or to get better at or to overcome. But Paul doesn't use that word when he talks about dwelling in sin. He uses the word deliver. Deliverance is what you and I need. Rescue is what you and I need. We need God's rescue mission. And the good news of the Gospel is that God Himself reaches down into the dark black pit of sin and grabs us. Or you and I are scraping to find the walls and stumbling about. All of a sudden, light gets breathed into our souls and a gracious, tender hand grabs us out of nowhere and pulls. And we are pulled out of this pit of despair. And we are ushered out of darkness and what once was blackness around us begins to be flooded away with inexpressible light. How has God qualified you? He has reached down in darkness and delivered you. Saved you from something you didn't even know you needed to be saved from. And how has He done that? By transferring you to the kingdom of His beloved Son. You know what the best picture for that is in my mind? The parable of the prodigal son. You have this wayward son who's lived in the filth of a pigsty, eating slop and covered in mud and gross and stinky and detestable and he's He's practiced all these vain things and spent his inheritance and wasted his life away. And he finds himself at the lowest imaginable point of his life in total despair. And he says, at least my father's servants are treated better than I'm treated. I'll go back and be a servant to my father. And when he goes back, he finds deliverance is far greater than he imagined. And he's transferred from this pigsty back into his father's home. And what is the parable? say there what does Jesus say he puts a coat on his back a ring on his finger sandals on his feet and he kills the fattened calf and throws a party that is the picture of conversion 
you are transferred out of this muck and mire of sin, out of the pit of the pigs, and you are given a coat and a ring for your finger to signify who you are, and shoes for your feet, and the fattened animal is slaughtered, and the feast ensues. You have been taken from the domain of darkness and put in, placed in the kingdom of Christ. That word transfer simply means to move from one place to another. Let me just make a side note real quick. Humanity never exists in a neutral place. You exist in one or the other. The domain of darkness or the kingdom of Christ. There is no in-between. And when transferred, you're moved from one place to the other. And as Christians, we're brought into the glories of Christ's rule and reign and wonder. Oh, we need God so desperately to intervene, don't we? And yet when He does, He intervenes to the fullest. John Calvin said something like, when God sees something through, He sees it to the fullest possible completion. And that's what happens in conversion. How are you and I qualified and made right for the kingdom? We're converted. We're taken from the domain of darkness, delivered from it, and transferred into God's glorious reign. We belong to a different country now. All of a sudden, we're different people. All of a sudden, we're made new. And all of a sudden, these rags that we were living and existing in are taken off and robes of righteousness are put on. And all of a sudden, we're breathing life now. And our dead souls are electrified and they're moving and they're working. And we can taste goodness now. And we can drink joy now. And we understand peace now. And we get glimpses of the glory of God now. And we've tasted a satisfaction we've never tasted anywhere else. And we find a pleasure that we've never experienced before. And all the vain things of this life begin to to fall away and melt away and, and substance takes its place because now we're alive. Now we're citizens of a far better country. Now we're a new people. We're no longer defined as slaves and captives to darkness. We're servants, citizens, and children of the kingdom of God. Verse 14, this is the essence of conversion. In Christ we have redemption. And how is that redemption defined? The forgiveness of sins. Again, the problem is our guilt. The problem is we need our guilt pardoned and atoned for. We need our sins forgiven and washed away. That's the, the beauty of Colossians chapter 3. We, we walked through that account of all these earthly things. And in verse 6, he says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Verse 7, in these two, you once walked, past tense. But you've been redeemed. You've been washed. Your sins have been forgiven. 
God holds them against you no more. You're clean. You're new. You're righteous. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. What does Paul say? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he says, do not be deceived. Don't justify yourself. Don't believe a lie. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then this glorious phrase, but such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In short, we are all guilty. And the only way our guilt is dealt with is when God redeems us through Christ by forgiving us of that sin. What a glorious truth to consider. We who were unqualified as far removed from God as possible have now been qualified by being converted, delivered from darkness and transferred to God's kingdom by being redeemed through Jesus, having our sins forgiven. This makes me come back in, in wrapping up here to the very first phrase of verse 12. You want to live a life worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him? Give thanks to the Father. Don't we have something to give thanks for? Absolutely. We're a people who have been taken from one extreme to the other. And not by anything of our own doing, and certainly not by anything of our own deserving, but purely by the love and mercy and grace and kindness of our God. He looked upon us when we were hopeless. He looked upon us when we were still in our sins, totally undeserving. God demonstrates His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died. Romans chapter 5. He has done a great work in us. And so the proper response for the Christian, and this is why I would say it's a chief mark of the Christian life, it is giving thanks to the Father. Not a one-time thank you and move on. A constant orienting your life to being a thanksgiving person. What, is, what does that look like? That looks like humility. Humbling yourself before God and confessing that apart from you I have nothing. But because of you I'm so thankful for everything I have. Giving thanks means that you realize everything is a gift. It means that you give honor to the Father. Honor where honor is due. It means that you express your entire dependence upon Him. It means you're showing respect to Him. Ultimately, it's the way we render worship to Him. Worship without thanksgiving is no worship at all. As we consider these Colossian Christians and the, the threat of false teaching that plagues their church, Paul knows the antidote to false teaching is thanksgiving. 
Because that's what reminds Christians that everything we have from God, it's nothing merited, nothing earned, purely a gift. What prevents you and I from being legalistic and entering into a works-based religion and succumbing to false teaching or growing apathetic in our walk with God? It's by constantly giving thanks. Remembering everything we have comes from the good and gracious hand of our Father. In church, when we are saturated in thanksgiving, when we are consumed by glorifying God, by giving Him thanks, then we worship differently, we obey differently, we live differently, we please Him differently. We talk differently, we interact differently, our relationships are different. Everything about us changes. Because we are people convinced and confessing what we have is from God. I would not be surprised one ounce if there were unbelievers among us today. I would not be surprised if God stood, we stood before God right now in this moment and He identified unconverted people amongst us right now. The reason I'm not surprised is because Matthew 13, Jesus says, the wheat has weeds in it. There are always false converts among the people of God. My hope and my prayer is that maybe you realize I don't give thanks to God regularly. My life isn't one of thanksgiving because I really haven't tasted of that gospel. I really haven't experienced that salvation. That complete and total transformation. That complete and total conversion. Deliverance transferred qualified. The good news is Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, behold, today is the day of salvation. You can be saved in a moment by coming to Christ and giving your faith, giving your life to Him, placing your faith in Him, trusting in Him totally, wholeheartedly. Christian, those of you certainly convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are born again, let us be a people distinct from the world by giving thanks to God. Uniquely, a people of thanksgiving. Oh, I want you to please God with your life. I want you to live in a way that's worthy of Him. And I'm telling you the way to do that is by being a person of thanksgiving to Him for all that He's accomplished on your behalf. I want us to take a moment this morning and express some thanks to God. Maybe you are unconverted, and now is the time you need to be saved. You can take that to the Father. Maybe you are a Christian, and now is the time that you want to say thank you to the Father in a unique way. Let's, let's do that. After a moment here, I'll pray and we'll worship. But let's take a time now and spend it with the Father. Father, it's not bad for us to stop and be still for a moment and be quiet and let Your Word sit upon our hearts and our minds. I hope and I pray that it is doing that.
I hope and I pray that we're not distracted by what time it is or our desire to go eat lunch or our desire to talk with our friends. I hope we're, we're being singled out by Your Spirit. We're contemplating truth. We're letting our hearts and our minds be affected by Your Word. I pray that You are stirring our hearts up to be a, a people of thanksgiving. I don't know how Your people could ever be a passionless people, Father. I know we have seasons of dryness and, and ruts in life, but overall, I don't know how we could regularly be passionless people. I don't know how we could say that we give thanks to You without our emotions being affected by that. For all that You've done, Your works to save us are Wondrous God. And we do thank You very much. Everything we have comes from Your hand. Everything we have is because You loved us first. Because You acted first on our behalf. Help us to be a people of thanksgiving. People of thanksgiving as we live our lives, as we interact with our spouse, as we raise our children, as we sing praise and worship songs, as we listen to your word, as we pray, as we read your Bible. In every way, let us be people of thanksgiving. Would you save the lost here this morning? Would you prick their heart with truth, with, with knowing, with real deep conviction? where they know right now in their seat, in this moment, without a shadow of a doubt, that they have not experienced this kind of power and work in their lives. God, they may be arguing with You. They may be justifying themselves. They, they may be wrestling with You. Overcome them and, and not don't let them loose. Expose unbelief in their life that they might be born again. Who cares what others think? And for your children this morning, please keep stirring us up to realize the enormous gift and glory of Christ. Make us an ever-increasing people of gratitude. In Jesus' name, Amen.